0: If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the first book of John. Be reading from John chap- verse one, or sorry, First John chapter two, verse one through five. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily, is the love of God perfected. Hereby know ye that we are in him. Well, it is good to be back with you. You always enjoy a little trip away, but it's always wonderful to come back and be with uh, your home congregation. And uh, when you are apart, I think it does help one to appreciate those who are at home maybe a little bit more. This morning, we want to be reminded for a few moments about the confidence of Christ. That's what I've entitled this sermon, The Confidence of Christ. Now the word confident means to be full of conviction, having or showing assurance, being confident. We all understand exactly what that means, and I think that confidence is a necessary trait in life if one is going to be successful, and I believe it is a trait that can be gained and learned, especially when we talk about the confidence of Christ. Now... When we're confident, we will have a sense of well-being, won't we? We'll have an understanding that the things in which we engage, uh, we will be successful with those things. The endeavors of life, we know that we can make those accomplishments. And we can meet the goals that we set forth. Confidence is something that we need to have every day. And this also applies to our spiritual life. We need to have confidence in our spiritual lives. We need to be able to understand and to say that I have a crown of life waiting on me when this physical life is over. And I think it is sad when Christians are not able to say that. Not that they believe they're not living faithfully, but sometimes there is a sense in us that prevents us from saying, I know that we are saved. And I think it has a lot to do with denominational teachings. It it we've gone so far to try to teach against the uh, the falsehoods that are in the religious world that sometimes we go a little too far. We try to teach against and and understand properly what God means about the elect, those who are saved. There is such a thing as the elect. But not the elect uh prior to the creation of this world, that God decided those who would be saved and those who would not be saved. The elect, according to Peter, are those who have chosen to be faithful to God. That's the elect. God's called us; has called us and we have elected to obey Him. And so we need to be able to have that courage and that confidence to say, I am saved. I don't believe it's arrogance. It's not arrogance. It's not... Pride, to have a sense of confidence. It's not that we believe we are spiritually superior to anyone, but we need to be able to say, I am saved. God wants that for us. He wants us to have that. It was Paul who said this. Notice 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Paul said, I've been faithful. I've fought the good fight. I'm ready to go. I know there is a crown of righteousness waiting on me. He wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being prideful. He was simply being confident in his salvation. And why was he able to do that? Why was Paul able to do that? I think he was able to do it for the exact same reasons that John said we could do it. Notice again, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments, we can always say, I have a home in heaven waiting on me, when this life comes to an end. That is the confidence of Christ. John continued in his letter, First John 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. He hasn't asked us to do anything that we are not able to accomplish. God will never do that. He'll never ask us to go beyond what we are able to do. He only wants us to do what He's asked us to do, and His commandments are not grievous. We can have the confidence of Christ, and we can be confident in being able to meet those requirements. God wants that for us. In our passage this morning, John has laid out for us the reasons that we can be confident in our salvation, the reasons we can have the confidence of Christ. First of all, this is our first point, I want us to notice. John said we can have the confidence of Christ because we have an advocate. Our first point, an advocate. Now there is a purpose behind our needing an advocate with the Father. Now this term advocate is a judicial term. It's used uh, in the sense of someone representing another person. We might say a lawyer or an attorney. So we have an advocate to go before the judge on our behalf so we can stand justified before God. We have that. Specifically, it is one who pleads the case or the cause of one before a judge. Christ, of course, is our advocate. And why is it that He can be our only advocate? Christ is our mediator. He's our advocate. Why is that? Because no one else can be that. No one else can be our advocate beyond Christ. John described Christ as our advocate because He's righteous. He is a righteous individual. Now notice this. I think this is very important. If we were to have an advocate that needed intercession on his behalf before the Father, he would have no hope of pleading the case for someone else, right? If we go to court and we have a lawyer or an attorney, but he is wanted before that same judge and he has to have uh, another lawyer or attorney to stand before that judge on his behalf, how can he help us? He's not able to do that, is he? He has to be worried about having someone go before the judge on his behalf. So Christ is the only person that can make mediation for us, that can be our advocate. Now, Christ did that in such a way that no one else has ever done or could do. You know, as Christians, we have a lot of intercessors, don't we? We intercess for each other. We go before the throne of God on behalf of each other. We ask God's blessings and prayers on family members. We ask His blessings on uh, friends of ours, on uh, congregations of people, on missionaries, on, on different, an array of different people. We, we go before God and we intercess. We have another intercessor. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor. Uh, notice that four times, four times in the, in the letter written to the Romans, Paul made the statement, that the Holy Spirit is our intercessor. He goes before the throne of God on our behalf. Sometimes when we, when we don't really know what to say, have you ever been praying to God and you needed something so bad and you couldn't really articulate uh, in, in a proper way, or at least that's how you felt? You couldn't articulate it in a way that, that truly explained what you needed and what you felt? Of course we have. We've all been there. On our behalf, the Holy Spirit goes before God. And He relays that message for us. Even though we can't truly put it in words ourselves. But why is Christ our greatest intercessor? Have you ever thought about that? He's our greatest intercessor. Because He lived and experienced the human condition, didn't He? He came to this earth and He lived as a man. He grew up as a person, a child. He experienced everything that we experience. He endured all of the temptations and overcame them. There's nothing in this life that He does not understand. We can't stand before God in the end and say, look, you don't understand what it's like to live in this world because Christ did it. Not that God or the Holy Spirit doesn't understand that. They know all things. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is Christ specifically lived as a person. And He understands every single thing that we have endured in this life. And He can intercess for us. Christ's purpose was to be our advocate advocate and our mediator. That's why He came. And so He learned all things living in this physical world. Again, not that He didn't know all things, He's God. But He experienced them as a person. And He learned through that. That's what the writer of Hebrews talked about. He learned obedience through those things which He suffered. When we study John's letter, we learn what our purpose in this life is. And it fits right in with what the wise man Solomon said, to fear God and keep His commandments. John says that we sin not. That's our purpose in being here, right? To live in such a way that we do not sin, but that we fulfill the commandments and duties that God has placed before us. I believe this part of the letter answers the questions that may arise from the first one. How do we become righteous in the sight of God how do we become forgiven of sins when we do make mistakes in this life those are questions that need to be answered right what are the conditions with which we must meet in order to be forgiven that's something we all ought to know we ought to ask that we walk in the light when we do not live in sin we have to understand that living in sin and committing sin on occasion are two different things a person who lives in sin has no regard for God. A person who has given himself to God and is living every day, striving to be what God wants, trying to have the confidence of Christ, that person will sin on occasion. That's what John said in, his, in the first chapter. But he's now telling us what we need to do in order to meet those conditions where Christ can be our advocate. And we can have the confidence of Christ because there is a purpose behind His being an advocate. But here's the thing. There's also a plan, right? We have to understand what the plan is. Christ didn't come to to earth without a plan. He didn't come to, to earth without a purpose. Paul told the Ephesians that. Ephesians 3 verse 11. The eternal purpose of God which ultimately was manifest in the person of Christ Himself. God sent Jesus to be our Savior, but we must abide by the plan. The good thing about our relationship with God and His being our advocate and our mediator is that we didn't have to come up with a plan of salvation on our own. It is not possible that man come with his own plan of salvation. That had to come from the mind of God. But it's laid out for us. God has made sure that we have everything necessary to be saved. That's where our confidence lies, right? Paul explained to us that the gospel is the source of our faith, right? It is the foundation upon which we build our spiritual lives. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. No other source can give that to us. We can read encyclopedias. We can read history books. We can read uh, science books, math books. We, there are so many sources of knowledge that's very needful in the world today that we need to have. But it cannot save us from hell. It's knowledge we need in this physical world. But it is not knowledge that will gain spiritual life for us. It doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. It doesn't matter what anyone says it only matters what the bible says it only matters what god has left for us to learn if a person can clearly show in the scripture that god has commanded this or that or can show us things that we need to do it is necessary and, and right to heed that heed those words but at the same time if someone cannot show us clearly in the scripture What they teach is from God. It is necessary and just as right to avoid that person because we cannot put our souls in jeopardy based on what someone feels or what they think. I may think or feel a multitude of things that may be wrong, right? We go back to the great apostle Paul. He told the Sanhedrin council, I've lived every day of my life up to this day. In all good conscience toward God. But he had a history of killing Christians. And he did it with a good conscience. See, our conscience cannot be our guide unless it's trained properly. And it must be trained according to the Word of God. The second part of Christ's plan is once faith is cultivated, it brings about, or it ought to bring about, godly sorrow. We read about that in Second Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow is that sorrow that says, I'm sorry because I did it. I'm sorry because I hurt someone involved. I've used this example before, but it is so wonderful. A friend of ours had a, had a young boy, and he was up on the countertop in the cookie jar. She walked in the kitchen, and he he was about four years old or so, and he had his arm all the way down into that cookie jar. And when she came in, he instead of pulling his arm out of the cookie jar and running off, he first put as many cookies in his mouth as he could, and then he ran off. And he was sorry he got caught because he wanted more cookies, right? That's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Of course, that's a, that's a humorous illustration. He was just four, right? But I'm sorry because I hurt God. That's godly sorrow. Now, godly sorrow and repentance, they're not the same things, right? We can be sorry and not do the proper things to take care of that, right? We can have godly sorrow. Godly sorrow in this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, leads to repentance. Godly sorrow will allow us to repent if we will do it. And repentance, of course, means a change of mind that results in a change of action. And God requires that. Making the good confession that Jesus is the Son of God, will lead us unto salvation, Romans 10. 10. And we need that. That great confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died, He was put on the cross and He was buried and three days later He came out. And at the very present, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. I need to make that confession. That's the one-time confession prior to being immersed in water. But I have to live that confession. I have to continually live as if I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God that He died for my sins and that He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, the position of power as we speak. People have to see that in my life, right? And then, of course, there's another step into salvation. It was Brother Marshall Keeble who recorded a sermon one time said, there is water in the plan. There is water in the plan. It was Christ who said, Mark sixteen sixteen? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin is a requirement. Now, the denominational world, many in the world today, they will relegate baptism to an outward show of an inner faith. I don't read about that in the Bible. I, I would like for someone to show that to me, if it is there. They say that it is a work. Well, it is a work, but it's a work of God. It's not a work of man. It's not something that that a group of people derived in some way, on their own, to say, we need to take this step. It is a work of God. It is a work of God the same way faith is a work of God. Jesus, on one occasion, was asked a question. He was asked, how do we work the works of God? And his reply was very simple. John 6, 29, he said, This is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. Faith is a work of God that we believe on Jesus. God sent Jesus. We need to believe on Him. That's a work. We're not trying to work our way to heaven. We're trying to get to heaven by performing the works of God and being faithful. Then, of course, faithful living. The final step of salvation, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always abounding in the work of God. See, we can have the confidence of Christ because we have an advocate, but we can also have the confidence of Christ because we have atonement for sin. This is our second point. Atonement for sin. Atonement requires a ransom. A ransom has to be paid. In order to be bought back, we have to have a ransom. And we have a ransom in Christ. Why? John said he is our propitiation for sin. A propitiation is a suitable sacrifice. That's what it means. Could bulls and goats be a suitable sacrifice? They'd been doing that for 4,000 years. So what was the suitable sacrifice? Notice what the writer of Hebrews explained. Hebrews 10 verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. The good news was that there could be a sacrifice that could eliminate sin. The good news was that Christ came into the world, and is, and He died for our sins, therefore sin being eliminated. Not sin that is rolled forward to have to be dealt with in the future like the Jews had to do. Every year on the Day of Atonement they had to have a special sacrifice. They would use the scapegoat. They would send him out into the wilderness. That was uh, a way in which the sin was moved forward until that exact same time next year. See, that's not what we want. And that wasn't the eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose was that Christ came. He was our atonement. He paid our ransom because He paid a debt we could not pay. Again, it goes back to righteousness, right? Right? I can't be a righteous sacrifice because I haven't always been righteous. But Christ was. He lived in a righteous way and He was always righteous. And He has rendered us favorable toward the Father. Isn't that the good news we're looking for? That's why the Gospel is the good news, right? He's rendered us favorable in the sight of the Father. He reconciles us to God, enabling us to be at peace with Him. Paul said this, Romans 5.11, But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Through our atonement we've been ransomed back. But we have to keep in mind, there are still requirements for our atonement. Paul declared, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a requirement, okay? Eternal life is a free gift, but it comes with attachments, right? We inherit something. We didn't earn it. We didn't inherit the the $1 million our rich uncle that we never knew left us. We didn't earn that money. But if he said you have to come to such and such a place at such and such a time to receive the $1 million, that doesn't mean I earned it. That means I met the requirements to gain it, right? Right? And so it's the same thing with, with uh, our spiritual lives. This entire section from, fir- from 1 John 1 verse 5 all the way through chapter 2 is a closely knit and well-ordered argument designed to reveal the blessings available to each of us through Christ. If we're faithful to God, we can have the confidence of Christ. We know that we're not living in darkness because God is light. We're not claiming to be sinless because we're living in the light. And when we recognize our sin, we ask God to forgive us and His blood will continually cleanse us. 1 John chapter 1. So we're understanding this. And the truth is this. What are the requirements? To be ransomed. To allow the atonement to work for us. When I recognize sin, I admit it. I repent of it. I turn my life back to God. And it is taken away, eliminated forever. Now, can I sin again in the future? Well, sure. But I'm always on the lookout. And I'm on guard constantly because I want to walk in the light. John taught his readers that not only is Christ the propitiation or the ransom for those who have believed and those who have obeyed the gospel, but for everybody who would believe and who would obey He's available, right? He's always available to us. We can have the confidence of Christ because we have an advocate. We have this atonement that we've been talking about. But we can keep the confidence of Christ if we keep our allegiance toward God. That's our third point our allegiance toward God. When we give our allegiance to God, that simply means we're faithful, right? We're faithful to Him, we're obedient to Him. We do the things He's asked us to do. And we can be assured that we're faithful. We can know whether we're faithful or not. John said that we know we're faithful by keeping His commandments. It's not a trick question, is it? God's not trying to trip us up. He's not trying to trick us. He has given us the answers to the test. And all we have to do is be faithful. Now this word keep in the, group, in, in the Greek is a, it is a present Subjunctive verb. That means it's a continuous action. We might say if we keep on keeping His commandments, right? That's how we know we're faithful. And that's the whole premise upon which the confidence of Christ is built. Knowing we're faithful because we know what God expects and we fulfill those expectations and we're able to do that. And that allows us to to understand, just like Paul, he said, I know there's a crown waiting on me. But not just me, but to all those who love His appearing, we can know that we have the confidence of Christ. If we're faithful, but if we're going to show our allegiance to God, we must never forget Him. We have to keep on keeping on. This word, keepeth His Word, or this phrase, keepeth His Word in verse 5, is the same as keep His commandments in verse 3. We have to do that. The words in Him indicate. An intimate relationship. That's what we want, an intimate relationship with God. But we can only do it if we're being faithful to Him. We need to always remember, as Christians, as faithful people who have the confidence of Christ, we need to always remember the fruit produced in our life is the result of the love that we have for God. That's what we always need to keep in mind. Christ said this, John 15 Begin with verse 4. He said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. It's useless to claim a love for Christ and not be obedient to His commandments. That's an acid test, isn't it? Isn't that the acid test for faithfulness? If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. We can know. And that's the good news. Don't you know that it is uncomfortable in life to live without confidence? Whether it's a social setting or whatever the, the case may be, we'll feel awkward. We don't know if we fit in and we want to fit in. You know, perhaps we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Perhaps we're afraid that someone won't like us. Isn't it uncomfortable not to have that confidence in our lives? The same thing can be said about our spiritual lives. It's not enjoyable to lack spiritual confidence. It's not enjoyable for someone who loves God and they truly want to get to heaven to go through life not knowing for certain if we'll be there. But we can know, we can understand, if you love me, Keep my commandments. We can be assured of salvation and we can live with the confidence of Christ. All we have to do is to be obedient. And we have the opportunity to do that this morning. If you've never obeyed the gospel, it's not possible to have the confidence of Christ because you know that you haven't done those things necessary. Maybe you have obeyed the gospel and you've gotten sidetracked in life. Look, that happens. Sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we lose sight of of what our goal is. We can overcome that. We can come back to God. And we can do that through the, the pattern set forth, right? Repentance of sin, confessing that we've done wrong, and coming back to Him through prayer. That's how we do it once we've obeyed the gospel, right? We talked about how to obey the gospel. Faith, belief, repentance, confession, baptism, faithful living. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation today, do that as we stand and as we sing.